thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight, we're going to be studying the book of Genesis from a physical point of view. We're focusing on the first chapter, and if you notice, I am not right now giving you more of a sort of an overview of the book of Genesis, more than we've done last time. I'm delving right in the first chapter, and... um, And the reason is that once we've covered the physical reality, we're going to come back and really deal with the more profound theological reality of the book of of Genesis. Let me give you an outline of what we're going to do for the next three lectures. I'm very, very happy that many of you have brought notebooks. I was concerned about this because I forgot to let you know. But I need to let you know that without a notebook for the next three lectures, you're going to be potentially lost. So if you don't have a notebook, please get one. You're going to need it. Today's lecture will focus on the standard model, the Big Bang. I'm going to walk you through the Big Bang today in one hour. 13.7 billion years in one hour. (laughs) Nothing less. Next lecture will be focused on the theory of relativity. We're going to mostly focus on the, stand, on, the, on, the, on the special theory of relativity and we'll touch upon the general theory of relativity. The lecture after will deal with quantum physics. Now, some of you may be wondering, I came here for a Bible study, not physics. Why is he doing this to me? It is absolutely true that none of that stuff I'm going to be covering is essential for salvation. You do not need to know the Big Bang or the theory of relativity or quantum physics to get to heaven. Thank God. So why am I bothering with all of that? Why later on will I bother talking to you about the theory of evolution? Because there are principal truths, the incarnation, the death and resurrection of our Lord, the institution of the Eucharist, the teachings of the church, those are principal truths, those we need to get to heaven. Always keep in mind, we will not make it to heaven 
if we believe in something that is contrary to the truth. And the truth is not something. The truth is somebody. I'm quoting again Father Karapi. It is Jesus Christ. If you are in heaven and you believe in something that is not compatible with Jesus Christ, guess what? It's not heaven, is it now? Do you understand? So, while we do not need to know everything about heaven, because we can't know everything about heaven, we're not God, we have to have a spirit of docility, a spirit of obedience to the teaching of the church, so that when we get to heaven, the stuff that we believe in is completely in harmony with heaven. In a mystical sense, we have what we call the union of souls, Our soul is united with that of Christ. And the stuff that we do not know come to us as a very, very pleasant surprise. Now, that's heaven. Now, there are secondary truths, those that support the primary truths. And you and I, probably many of you parents especially, know of kids who've gone to university, got into the sciences, and lost their faith. Anyone care to tell me if you know somebody like that? Yes. That's the problem we're addressing today. Why is that so? Sure, we can go blame those other guys out there in the university doing all that stuff. But we would be wrong-headed if we did that. Because, frankly, there isn't much we can do about them now, can we? But there is something we can do. Something we've been negligent about as Catholics. And that is trying to understand the sciences and see how they are actually in harmony or how they are compatible with the Catholic faith. That's what we have been lacking all along. It would seem as if the church is in one, on one end, the science is on the other, and there is nothing in between. But that has never been the position of the church, and that is not... Catholic theology. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the physics of the universe. Then we're going to talk about biology. And then I'm going to show you how both the physical laws of the universe and the biological laws are wrapped up into the cosmic liturgy. I'm going to present to you a Catholic vision that... Is part of our inheritance, but we have been deprived of that vision because we Catholics are spending our time being like everybody else and start to try and being a Catholic. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? There is truth in what the physical science are telling us. There is truth in what the biological science are telling us, but both of these truths pale in comparison to the overarching truth presented in theology in something that St. Methodius calls the Cosmic Liturgy. I'm going to show you that the the laws that govern space-time are actually intimately related to the Eucharist. There is depth to the universe that we today ignore because we no longer look at things liturgically. We look at things in a very materialistic point of view. Instead of us Catholics informing the world 
the world has been informing us. Why? Because we've not been playing ball. We are nowhere to be seen on the science, on a scientific field. Well, that's not completely true. But overall, we, laity, have sort of taken refuge in this position of defense that says, you know, the world was created in six days, young earth theory and all that. I'm going to address that. I'm going to show you how this is actually a poor position to espouse from a Catholic standpoint. So do you understand what I'm trying to do? I am not addressing these things because everybody here is a fan of Einstein, although in one sense we should be, in another we may not be, or everybody here is absolutely fascinated by quantum theory. I do have a problem. I mean, I, mean, I have a difficulty understanding why, no, why not everybody would be fascinated by quantum theory. I think it is fascinating. But then again, that's me. Uh, when my wife and I walk on, in a park, she'll point out the beauty of a tree, and I look at it and I see the fractal composition. That's how we are. But then it's kind of compatible in a, a very interesting way. So I'm going to give you a glimpse of all of this so that hopefully when you go to the university, if you're not there yet, or when you will send your children to the university, they will have at least a framework to depend upon and be able to answer back when their science, their science teachers play theologians and typically really bad theologians. Let us begin. This is going to be very interactive, but I'm going to define interactive. I'm, I'm going to present to you a very high-level view of the Big Bang. I promise you there will be no equations. You can ask questions, but I'd like your questions to be targeted on clarifying points. I don't want the questions to be about uh, challenging the, the standard model. I want you to wait with that. Or about the scientific foundation of it. I'm not going to be talking to you about bundles over complex manifolds. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. If you know what, I, what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. We're not going to go there. Okay? This is the mathematical foundation that is used for the general theory of relativity. Um, we're going to simply try to understand it with a really a, a, ref, a reflective view. I'm going to show you the beauty behind it. I'm going to show you the beauty behind it. There's one principle I'm going to put forth, and I want you to think about it. Let's assume you have two managers. One manager is a micromanager. He's going to do everything himself. The other knows how to delegate and allows others to do really good work. Which of these two you think is better? The second one. Okay. Everybody, second one? All right. Let me ask you this question now. Is God a micromanager? He's not. What did Jesus say? In fact, you will be able to do things greater than these. Right? He's not a micromanager. I want you to keep that in mind. That's very important. And it will be elucidated as we pr proceed through. So, first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. I'm going to stop right here. Right there. That's the passage that we're going to be really interested by. But we're going to look at it from a physical point of view, using the standard model. So I'd like you to follow me now as we embark on this journey. And once we've covered this, by the way, I'm going to go back to this text. I'm going to show you correspondences that exist at a very deep level between the book of Genesis and between the standard model. And they're really fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, one more note before I start. There is one mistake we will not make. And it's one mistake that um, the church and her teachings never made, but church folks do make often. And that is building our theology on top of science. You understand what I'm saying? I'll give you an example. How many of you have heard the notion of God as the clockmaker? You've heard this one, right? It's a very bad idea. Really bad. And I'll tell you why later. But this is one that effectively build theology, God as a clockmaker, on a Newtonian mechanistic view of the world. When Newton set forth the laws of gravity and explained how the planets turn around the sun, the people, his con contemporaries viewed the world in mechanical terms. Why? Because back then, mechanical engineering was the forefront of science. And then they used that framework to build on top of it a theology whereby they would say God as a clockmaker. God basically winds the universe, and then the universe sticks. Now, what's wrong with this idea? There are many things wrong, but one in particular. God is a distant God. Right? You kind of, you know, go to Windows XP, go to the Start button. He starts the thing and then comes back every million years to check on it and see how it's running. Do you see how this view of God is actually very much against a Catholic understanding? Because what is the underlying, underlying message within the Catholic Church about God? What is this thing that God does for us on a constant basis? It's a word that starts with the letter P. Providence. God's providence. If you're a Catholic, you don't believe in luck. There's no such thing as luck. There's God who's in conversation with you throughout your day. That's the difference. God is the eternal present. God is always present before you. Or... More correctly, we are always present before God. There's no vacuum where God is not present. 
He's always there with us. Behold, I am with you. And when Jesus said with you, he didn't mean sort of uh, with you as a CEO is with the company. He meant with you personally until the consummation of time. God as a clockmaker is not Jesus Christ. You understand? We will not build our theology on science. What we will do instead is show how science and theology harmonize. There's a harmony because both of them are seeking the truth in different ways, but they're both seeking the truth. So keep that in mind. All right, let's now proceed through the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory. How many of you, anyone here has not heard of the Big Bang? Okay, thank you. We're going to cover it from its very beginning. Let's put this in context. 19th century. Go back to 19th century, and the Greek idea of the universe prevails. What was the scientific thought about the universe in the 19th century? Anyone care to provide idea? Well, what, what did they think the universe was, scientifically speaking? The universe was eternal. Eternal. Okay? That was the prevailing, prevailing thought about the universe. In fact, Einstein was one who actually subscribed to this idea. And when he brought forth his, his uh, equations, they indicated that the universe was expanding. And in order to correct that, he introduced something he called the cosmological constant so that he can stabilize the equation and come back to a steady-state universe that doesn't shrink and doesn't grow. And later on, he called that his worst blunder because he allowed his, the current view of the universe as eternal to pervade his equations, which he shouldn't have. That's how they viewed the universe, eternal. Then, a couple of things happened, which I will go in more detail when we get to the theory of relativity, but in particular... There is a, uh, um, an astronomer by the name of Hubble. You might have heard of the Hubble telescope. Where there was a guy before who actually sat in front of a telescope and observed a specific type of stars we call candle because their luminosity, the amount of light they emit, is constant. And he examined the redshift, the shift of the wavelength. Uh, you, you've all, we've all experienced this. If you're standing by a train, as it, I mean, you're standing, not by a train, you're standing and the train is coming in your way, the pitch of the train gets higher and higher and higher until he reaches you, the train reaches you, and then it starts to actually go lower and lower. Why? Because as the train moves in your direction, the sound waves are being compressed. And by being compressed, they produce this high pitch, but then when they, the train moves away from you, the sound waves are being elongated, to reach you. So sound is basically a wave. That's how it works. And that's why you have this sort of shifting effect. Well, the same thing happens with light. If you see something that is moving away from you, the color shifts to the red. If it's moving towards you, it shifts to the blue. Okay? So he sat down and started looking at these stars, and he discovered that there is this Doppler shift that is actually shifted to the red. So, after a little while, it dawned on him, if the color is shifted to the red, what does it mean about those stars? See, if we were a steady state, 
there would be no shift. The stars would be there and we'll be here. Right? Nobody's moving. No shift. But the, the Doppler effect shifted to the red. What is the logical conclusion? The stars are running away from us. Or we're running away from them. As a matter of fact, everybody's running away from everybody. Okay? He observed that. And along that, the general theory of relativity came and, and predicted that effectively there was a beginning to the universe. Because once you realize that everything is moving away from everybody, if you run the movie backward, what happens? Everybody's going towards everybody. That means everybody's going to get to a point where everybody's there. So to make a long story short, the notion then became that, hey, you know what? There was actually a start. And it started with a big explosion, a bang. Big bang. You're with me? As a matter of fact, the one who proposed this idea was a certain Georges Lemaitre, a French Catholic priest. It was one, if you will, um, correction. He basically talked about the primordial atom. But it's not a primordial atom that began the whole thing. But pretty much his idea was right on. So, in the, in the beginning, in the beginning, the whole of the universe was compressed. So, by whole of the universe, let me be very clear. I mean all the matter... All the physical matter, all the light, all the energy, everything was compressed into a point that is smaller than the dot of an eye in your book. Everything. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up a second. All right. What is the Big Bang then? The Big Bang is a cosmological model of the universe. A cosmological model of the universe. All right. Now let me be very clear about what cosmology is. As Rocky Kolb, a physicist, said, and I'm quoting him, cosmology is concerned with the makeup of the universe. All right? Cosmetology is concerned with the universe of makeup. Let's not confuse both. <laughs> Right? You may be more familiar with cosmetology than you are with cosmology, but here we're talking about cosmology. So it is concerned with the universe, the makeup of the universe. So it is astronomy on very large scales. We're not interested to know how far Earth is from the sun. We're interested to understand the overall structure of the universe. That's what we're trying to, to understand here. All right. So what do cosmologists do? Well... What they're trying to do is effectively come up with an accurate model that describes how the universe functions. And that model is mathematical. So they're trying to come up with an accurate mathematical model that describes the way the universe, at a macro level, proceeded. This is not a model that is going to try and predict that tonight we would have a Bible study. This is a model that is talking about the overall structure of the universe. How does the universe function? How come we have galaxies? Where do planets come from? How are they formed? In the grand scale of things. That's what they do. 
And what they want to do once they have a model, they want to test it by making predictions and seeing if the data conform to those predictions. And if they don't, you have to fix the model. Right there, there is a very profound question that Father Michael Healer, who was recently awarded a very prestigious prize, he, is, uh, he, he holds a PhD in, uh, in physics. He's from Poland. He, used to, he, he, he was a great friend of John Paul II, and he has over 400 published articles in, uh, in cosmology. He's very, very um, well-respected in that field. And he also has, a, I believe, a PhD in theology. His point, and I think it's a very profound point that most of us overcome, overlook, is the following. Why is it that the universe follows precise mathematical rules? Why is it that the universe follows precise mathematical rules? And that is a question we're going to come back to time and time again, especially when we start talking about teleology later on when we hit um, uh, theology. The one thing I want to point out to you that these guys studying cosmology, they're not there thinking about how can we undermine the faith of the Catholic Church. Most of them, many of them, or maybe a good portion of them, are atheists. Nevertheless, when it comes to the study of science, they have to follow rigorous methods because they're trying to come up with a mathematical model. And you can't come up with a mathematical model with opinions. The equations have to fit. They have to work. All right? Keep that in mind as you proceed through. Now, what they say in interviews is a different story. And how the media reports on what they're saying is, again, a different story. But when you look at the actual research... It tends to be extremely rigorous. Now, the Big Bang model that the whole universe started by a big explosion is the one that is most widely accepted by the scientific community, and there is a good reason for it. They predicted, one prediction that came through the equations, actually, was that the universe would be composed the early universe, and even today, the, the, okay, the visible universe would be composed of 75% hydrogen and 25% helium. And the observations have confirmed this to a great level of precision. Actually, it's 24% helium and 76% hydrogen. And that's important, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Then there is this presence of the cosmic microwave background radiation. The cosmic microwave background radiation. The idea was the following. If there was a Big Bang that happened long ago, and a couple of other events associated with which we're going to talk about, then those wavelengths of the explosion are still with us. But they're extremely short now, and the temperature is very cold, about 5 degree Kelvin. And in, in 1962, two scientists discovered those cosmic, the cosmic background right wave, uh, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation. So this is again a validation of the standard model that came through a a, um, a validation. They were actually working at AT&T, and they wanted to make sure that the antenna they had was completely silent but they just could not get it to be completely silent. And I couldn't understand why. There's always this noise. 
as a matter of fact, they considered even birds dropping. I mean, they considered everything. The guys were not looking for the stuff. But then they found it. And then the evolution of stars and galaxies. The standard model provides us with an understanding of how stars and galaxies evolved. So there is some predictive power to it. It isn't without challenges. There are some issues we still don't know how to resolve. So it's an ongoing research, and I'll talk about those. But by and large, that's what this is. Now, let me give you a brief outline of the Big Bang, and then we'll go back and look at it in details. So on your paper, write nothing on the left-hand side of your paper. Nothing. And, and to the right of nothing, write T equals zero. T equals zero. So as part of the standard model, there is this notion that the universe was created out of nothing. We don't know how the universe was created. We don't have a mathematical model to explain how something was created out of nothing. Although there are some folks within the quantum theory field that would argue that because matter and antimatter can appear spontaneously out of nothing, that this, this, may be the, the, this may be the reason why the universe was created out of nothing. But there are problems with this position because today we know that the vacuum of space is not really vacuous. And I'll tell you more about that. So I am not sure there is nothing anywhere. Okay? The notion that there is nothing somewhere may not be true. And there are fundamental reasons why this is the case. When we start talking about dark energy and dark matter. We'll get to that in a moment. All right. So there was nothing... And then, poof, the universe appeared. Now, let's be very clear. When we say the universe appeared, what do we mean? We mean the following. We mean space, matter, light, energy, and time. And time. All right? Let's make sure we understand each other. When there was nothing, there was no space, no matter, no energy, and no time. You're with me so far? And no light. Okay? This is why we can reasonably attain, as the church teaches, to the notion that there is a creator. Why? Because of logic. If you create a car, the car could not create you. If A implies B, B can't apply A. Right? Well, what is the cause of the universe then? Well, clearly the cause of the universe cannot be in the universe now, can it? It's outside of the universe. If it's outside of the universe, it is not material. We call it spiritual. It is not in time, therefore it's eternal. It is not material. It is not uh, spatial. Right? And it's not a ray of energy. We call this cause the creator. And then we can infer certain qualities about the creator, such as beauty and perfection and a number of other things. We can certainly not infer the Trinity out of this, but we can arrive through the use of our reason to the conviction that indeed there is a creator who created the world. It's not that difficult. All right, so nothing. Now I want you to move a little bit further and write 380,000 years. That's our first period. From nothing to 380,000 years in the life of the universe. During this period, the universe was effectively... One big soup. Okay? The technical term would be a quark gluon plasma. Okay? Uh, quark, quark, Q 
Q-U-A-R-K. That's one word. Gluon is another. G-L-U-O-N. And plasma. Plasma. Isn't plasma TV? Plasma. But it wasn't TV, just plasma. So what does that mean for you and me? It simply means this. The universe was in such a state of high energy that all the particles were basically whizzing about and not being able to connect. It's a little bit like New York. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Or rush hour here in, in Southern California. Everybody whizzing about, nobody's able to connect. Well, that's what it would look like. All right? And I'll get more into the specifics a little bit later. There is one key element, though. When I say high energy, in terms of wavelength, I mean that the light that was there was, had very short wavelength. It was in the gamma ray end of, of, end of the spectrum. All right? X-ray is a light. Ultraviolet is a light. All right? But we cannot see them. They're not visible. There is a small range of light that we can see. Because the light was in such a... Um, the, 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 essentially, what you were dealing with was mostly gamma rays, very short wavelength. Had we been there, what would we have seen? Darkness. Right? 380,000 years later, the particles kind of got a little bit tired of whizzing about and doing nothing for all this time. The parties come to an end now. Okay? So they come and cool down. More technically, the universe expanded enough so that the heat was more distributed over a bigger volume, and as a result, it went down. And in going down, all the particles, the teeniest piece of matter and light, cold, calmed down. And when they calmed down, guess what they did? They realized they were not alone, and they started shaking hands. And then they decided, hey, I'm going to stick around. So the atoms formed, and after the atoms formed, there was basically, because the, the, the particles come clumped together, there were now space available for the photons, photons, P-H-O-T-O-N, photon, that's the particle of light. What is light made of? Particles called photons. That's all we care to know right now. Now that the other guys kind of clumped together, guess what? There was space for the photons to escape. And what happened when they escaped? Darkness was separated from light. Light and darkness were separated. That's the first era. We'll get more into the details of this because there's a couple of more interesting things that happened. All right. Now, during that time, I talked to you about the lights. Let's talk about the other guys, the material guys. Right? Here's the deal. If you look at an atom... An atom has a nucleus, nucle nucleus. And it t typically it has these other guys called electrons. You've heard of the electrons? Right. What are electrons? They kind of look like guys who need to go to the bathroom but can't find it. Because they <laughs> spend their time whizzing about at ultra high speed and never stopping. They're negatively charged. They have a negative charge of one. And what do they whiz about? They whiz about the nucleus. What's in that nucleus? Two things. 
not the bathroom, no. Well, at least we haven't found it if it's there. Protons, protons and neutrons. So write those words as we go along, protons and neutrons. What's the difference? A proton has a positive charge of one. And a neutron, what is neutral? Right? He's the cool guy. Right? He's kind of sitting there, enjoying life. No electric charge. Don't bug me. Now, here's the deal. I told you a little bit earlier that the energy was so high that protons and neutrons would bang in each other, but they just could not stick around. They're too busy with their cell phones and their pagers and everything else they had to do. They just could not stick around. When things calmed down a little bit, they started sticking around. They formed the nucleus of a cell. What kind of atoms did we end up with? Well, the simplest is the hydrogen. The hydrogen atom has what? Come on, those of you in chemistry, help me out here. One what? One proton and one neutron, right? So the level of energy was high enough to effectively get the proton to stick with the neutron. And then another type of atom appeared that consists of two protons and two neutrons. Helium, hydrogen and helium. Nothing else appeared in that theory. Pretty much nothing else. All right? What, what's the problem? What is life made out of? Carbon, hydrogen, and neutron. I mean, hydrogen and helium. No life. Get it? No life. So we need something that's going to manufacture the heavy elements that we need to be able to build life with. The problem is the periods of time during which these atoms were formed are extremely short, very short. I'll tell you why in a minute. And the heavier element need high temperature for a lot longer. A lot longer. So, between 380,000 and about 4 billion years into the universe, we had the formation of quasars, which are type population 3 stars. Quasars. Q-U-A-Z-A-R. These are the most ancient stars we know of. And think of a star, therefore, as a big furnace. It's a huge furnace. All right? And in that furnace, protons and neutrons have time to cook and form heavier elements. Eventually, the star becomes unstable and it explodes, goes supernova. Wham! And when it does that, what does it do with those heavier elements? It spews them out. Why is that important? Because, in one sense, we on Earth, from a materialistic point of view, we are stardust. The molecules in our bodies were formed in the stars. So if you're wondering why did God to take 13.7 billion years to build this universe, because this is how long it took for life to appear. Now, if you're thinking, but couldn't have God created us directly without having to go through this whole process? Yes, if he, he could if he was a micromanager. What gives God a greater glory? That he can in an instant create everything, or he can let his creation participate in creation. He can let his creation participate in creation. 
What do we call parents? What are parents? Co-creator. There is a harmony in Catholic theology that covers the entire universe. I'm going to show you that time and time again as we proceed through. So, after the type 3 population stars were created, population 3, three stars were the oldest and the ancients and the lightest in terms of heavy elements, their stuff was spewed out. Eventually, gravity collected that stuff back together to create population 2 and population 1 stars. Our sun is a population 1 star. And it is these guys that have formed the planets. So, the first period is up to 380,000 years, during which the universe is basically this core glue and plasma. It's a big soup where nothing seems to collect. Then we had the second phase, where you had those quasars that appeared. Then a third phase, from 4 billion to about 12.3 billion, is how long it took before planet Earth was formed. And then the fourth period is life on Earth. So what the, what the model, the standard model does, is explain to us how this whole thing works. How it proceeds from one, one step to the next. And now what I'm going to do is take those four steps that I just walked you through and go through them in a little bit more detail to get you to have a sense of wonder about the power of mathematics, if nothing else, and the incredible, incredible order that is found in what seems to be chaos. And that is typically the way grace works in our lives. Mother Angelica said what? God writes straight with crooked lines. Nowhere will you find that than in the study of the standard model. God writes straight through crooked lines. Oh, yeah. One thing I wanted to point out to you, which is rather really interesting. You know, if you've heard about uh, those colliders, if you've seen them on TV, you wonder what those things are. These physicists, they seem to build these long corridors like nine kilometers long, and they're throwing particles against each other, right? And you're going to wonder, what are they doing? And this thing costs a fortune. Well, here's what they're trying to do. Currently, the universe is too slow. The particles are moving at sub-relativistic uh, speed, meaning they're not anywhere close to the speed of light that you really want them to be at. So what they do is that they get those particles running around like crazy in these corridors, increasing their speed and colliding them to see what the young universe looked like. That's what they're doing. They're trying to understand the makeup and the framework of the young universe. And in one of those research, very recently, actually last year, at the relativistic heavy iron collider, physicists slammed gold nuclei together, producing a temperature 300 million times hotter than the sun. This is the kind of temperature you need in order to understand the early time of the universe. Now, of course, it's because the uh, particle is so small that even though the temperature locally is that hot, around it is not that hot, so nothing melts. Okay? But when they did that, they recreated that quark gluon plasma I told you about. They effectively recreated that for a very brief instant, and they observed it, and guess what they found? They thought that that quark gluon plasma was made out of gas. You've seen most of the universe looks like gas, right? You have a lot of those cloudy things. But as a matter of fact, they discovered that it doesn't behave like gas at all. It actually behaves like a fluid. 
like water. God separated the water from above. and Yeah? We'll talk more about this later. All right. There are 12, 12 steps. I've divided the Big Bang into 12 steps. There are multiple ways of dividing it. Those steps will help you kind of get a glimpse of what is going on. I want you not necessarily focus on the specifics. Focus on the overall flow. That's what we're really after. Time T0. T equals zero. We're just starting. Oh, by the way, when the universe was created out of nothing, it isn't that it, it was created, and then, you know, two, three million years went by, and then it exploded. didn't happen this way. It was created as what is called in mathematics a singularity, which is a point of a very, very small point of infinite density and infinite heat. Now, we, don't ha- we do not have the mathematical model to understand that stuff, but that's what the mathematical model of the Big Bang forces us to conclude. That's what it was like on the moment of its creation. And it immediately exploded. Instantly. Now, that era, the time when it appeared, some call it the Augustinian era. The Augustinian era. George Gamow who in 1952 was one of the founding fathers of the Big Bang cosmology, proposed to call it the Augustinian era after St. Augustine, who was the, one of the, first, the first, if not one of, well, one of the first, if not the first, to postulate the notion that time did not exist before the universe. Time did not exist before the universe. By the way, the greatest theologians are always dialoguing with science. They have an ongoing dialogue with science, and we should not abandon that. I'm saying that he, we call it the Augustinian era in honor of St. Augustine, who was the first one to postulate that time did not exist before the universe was created. So it's in honor of St. Augustine that this was called the Augustinian era. And as I told you, we do not have, we don't understand how this works. And I'll tell you why in a minute we don't understand how this works. Okay, so this is the first step. Very easy. The universe just was created. So that's T equals zero. Now, the second one, I want you to write Planck's before, before Planck's time. Planck's time. And it's not about walking the plank. It's before Planck's time. P-L-A-N-C-K. P-L-A-N-C-K. So Planck's time referred to a specific time, which is 10, a little bit of arithmetic here, 10 to the negative 43. 10 to the negative 43. If you remember what that is, it's essentially a number that has a zero, followed by a decimal point, followed by 42 zeros and a one. You with me? Second. Second. 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So we're talking now, we're looking at a period of time that goes from time equals zero to time equals 10 to the negative minus 43 seconds. It's called before Planck's time. This bit of time is very annoying, and we cannot ignore it. Here's why. Okay, there are four forces that govern the universe. Four forces. All right? The force of gravity, we're all familiar with it. That's what keeps us on the ground. Force of gravity. The electromagnetic force, this force deals really with light. 
because electricity and magnetism are form of light. The strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. Four forces. The strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. The force of gravity you're all familiar with. Electricity and magnetism, you all know what I'm talking about. Electricity, you put your finger in it, you get zapped. Okay? Magnetism, you play with a magnet, you can get stuff stuck to it, right? So electromagnetism, talk about that. We'll deal with this next, next time around. It has important implication to the theory of relativity. Now, the strong nuclear force is not that difficult. It's the force. Remember our friends, the protons and the, and the neutrons, right? The protons has a positive charge of one. I told you helium has what? Two protons and two neutrons, right? In the nucleus. The nucleus is a really, really small, small place, all right? If you bring two magnets, you bring the positive poles of the two magnets. Have you ever tried that? If you, you haven't tried, try it. Take a magnet, take another, take the positive poles of the magnets, and try to push them against each other. They don't want to go, right? They're saying, no, nah, I'm not going there. Well, the protons are doing the same thing. This is positively charged. This is positively charged. See, we don't want to be together. It's like, you know, putting two people who can't stand each other in a bathroom. They don't want to be there. So how is it that our atoms, the atoms of our bodies, who have lots of protons stuck in a very, very tiny place, how come they stick together? The strong nuclear force. It's the strongest of all the forces, but it only acts on very short distances. Very short distances. What does it do to keep those protons together? Very simple. Ping pong. One thing that protons like to do is to play ping pong. Well, the ping pong ball is not a ball. It's called a meson, M-E-Z-O-N. It's an exchange of particle called a meson. You put two protons together really close to each other, and they start exchanging this meson. Ping pong, ping pong, ping pong. And then it kind of gets them distracted, and they stick together. Now, guess what? The neutrons... Those guys are the coolest. They like to play ping pong too. So they just play ping pong. And so what is the role of the neutrons? It's to reinforce, to reinforce the stability of the, of the nucleus of an atom. Without the neutrons, would be nowhere. Okay? That's a strong nuclear force. The weak nuclear force I'm not talking to you about, it has to do with exotic stuff, which we're going to leave alone. The point is this. We have four forces that, that govern the universe. Before Planck time, the four forces were together. One force. We don't know how that works. Technically, we would need a quantum gravitational theory to explain it to us. We don't have it. We don't know how it works. That's, that bugs scientists. Right? That's why it's important. So all space, time, matter, and energy are presumed to have exploded out of the initial singularity. I told you about this, and we know nothing about this period. We don't have a mathematical framework capable of explaining what took place during this era. We don't know. All right? Pardon? Yes. Well, it depends on which level, because unified field theory can be working on electromagnetic. Magnetic force and the weak force, and it's called the electroweak force. That's one unification. The second is incorporating the strong nuclear force. That's called the grand unification. Then you have the grand theory of all, which includes um, gravity. All right.
Planck time. So right around Planck time, there's something important about the universe. It was highly symmetric. Why? Because, as I said, everybody's zipping by everywhere, uniformly. Highly symmetric. Highly symmetric is a big problem for us. Because if the universe stayed highly symmetric, guess what it would look like? No, no, no. Think about, think about, uh, okay, you take a blender and you put in sand in the blender. And you start, you turn out that blender and the sand is flying all over the place symmetrically. Well, not completely because there's friction of other things, but imagine you're in a vacuum, you have perfect everything, right? No matter where you look in that blender, the composition of the sand will look exactly the same. It's symmetric. Now, take a hammer and blow that blender. What will happen to the, to the sand? It'll fly uniformly away. It will not clump. No clumping, no stars. No stars, no earth. No earth, no life. Get it? A highly asymmetric, so you, know, you throw in, you make a composition that looks like cement. What happens to all the sand? Clumps together. Clumps together, no life. Now, there is something called spontaneous symmetry break. Spontaneous symmetry break. The first spontaneous symmetry break allowed the force of gravity to break away. So during this period, the force of gravity separated itself. We really don't know why, but we know that it did. All right. Now, around 10 to the minus 36 second. We're making progress here, folks. 10 to the minus 43 to 10 to the minus 36. We're making progress. Second, the strong force separated from the electromagnetic force and the weak force. Pardon? That is indeed number four. The separation of the strong force. That's number four. It was just the point that I made. Yeah. Pardon? Three was Planck time. No. We have one is Augustin, uh, Augustinian era. Two before Planck time. Three Planck time. And now separation of the strong force. That's Augustinian era. Okay. Good. Good questions. It's Planck's time. Before Planck's time. So, the strong force now breaks apart from the two other remaining force. And as a result of this, it starts to try to grab the protons and the protons together. But guess what? The level of energy is so high, it just can't. Those guys are whizzing, whizzing by so fast, it just cannot grab them. But notice the order. Gravity comes first, then a strong nuclear force. These are the forces we need to construct the universe. So the forces are forming first. That's why these periods, even though very small, are very important for us. So think of it this way. The universe pop, you know, is created. Everything's chaotic for a very short period of time. We don't understand what's going on. Then gravity breaks away. The strong nuclear force breaks away. All right? Separation of the strong nuclear force. Five, inflation. Not economic inflation. <laughs> inflation. All right. This period lasts from 10 to the minus 36 second to 10 to the minus 32 second. 
Now, something remarkable happens during this period. During this period, the universe undergoes extraordinary, rapid increase in its volume. Basically, in this period, which is of the order of 10 to the minus 33 second, in this very short period of time, the universe goes from nearly 10 to the minus 60 centimeter in diameter, 10 to the minus 60 centimeter in diameter, to about one meter, three feet. The remarkable thing is that this is, of course, happening faster than the speed of light. Okay? It's happening faster than the speed of light. And there is really important reasons why we think inflation happened. And I'll tell you about them a little bit later. We think that the breaking of the strong force triggered that. But we don't understand how it worked. We don't know exactly how it worked. NASA has three projects to try to pin this down. It's going to be really interesting. So the, the inflation is there because it deals with two problems, the horizon problem and the flatness problem. The horizon problem, here's the problem. The, I told you about those microwave a little bit later, right? The microwave background uh, radiation, right? They're all about 3.7 the Kelvin. Uh, of, of, uh, Kelvin is the scientific notation for temperature, right? 3.7 degree. No matter where you look, it's 3.7 degree. Now, here's the problem. Take a big pan, a big pan. Put really hot water on one end of the pan, a bit of hot water on one end of the pan. It doesn't reach the, the middle of the pan. You're with me? Now, take a bit of cold water, put it on the other side of the pan. Okay? Cold, hot, none reach the center. Let's assume now that the water can move at the speed of light. Furthermore, let's assume that the pan is expanding faster than the speed of light. Okay? The pan is expanding faster than the speed of light. Will the two puddles of water reach each other? They won't. What does that mean? It means that the, the temperature differential will remain. You don't have homogeneity. The temperature is not the same. How come these microwave background radiation coming to us from the, the entire, from anywhere in the universe, have the same temperature? They, they must have been in touch at one point. Inflation is there to explain how. So homogeneity was reached before inflation, and when inflation occurred, that temperature was homogeneous across, across the entire universe. If you remove inflation, you can't explain this, the, the fact that you have the same temperature. Even though the, the, the variation during the period before inflation were very, very small and tiny, when the universe expands, they become more and more important. And the, the flatness problem is more problematic. Um, how can I say this? Essentially, it has the following. The, the, the problem that we face is without the inflation theory, you would have to effectively calibrate the universe with a constant that has 60 digits after the decimal for the universe to look the way it does today. Which is crazy. Right? So inflation also deals with this problem in explaining the geometry of the universe. That's all we need to care about right now. Now, again, this was hypothesized as a model, and now data is being captured from space to be able to check if indeed inflation uh, works. 
Alright, so the universe now expanded very quickly. And then we have the sixth period, which is the electroweak epoch. From 10 to the minus 36 to 10 to the minus 12 seconds. And 10 to the minus 36 to 10 to the minus 12, there is overlap. You know, things don't go in per perfect um, segments. The electroweak epoch is the epoch where you have the electromagnetic force and the weak force combined together still. And this period is important. It's important, it's a little bit more technical because um, it, it, it's a period where we've seen a number of exotic particles being created. Uh, I told you a little bit earlier that a weak nuclear force acts on weird stuff. What the weird stuff is the W and Z bosons and, and Higgs bosons. Let's not worry about it. What is important, though, is that during this period, massive particles can be thought to be created, which we're going to need later. That's what we need to, to understand right now. That's all. Ah, getting closer. Seven, the quark epoch. What is a quark? A quark is what, well, a proton, remember our friend the proton, and the, the two protons don't like to be in the bathroom together sort of thing, right? Well, a proton is made up of three quarks. Right? I believe it's, uh, what is it, two up and one down? Two up quark and one down quark, right? And the neutron is made up also of three quarks, but uh, the, the, the one, one, uh, one up and two down. Now, the, the, the point is that these are conceived to be the smallest particle there is, the smallest particle. And it's called the quark epoch from 10 to the minus 12 to 10 to the minus 6 because the electroweak symmetry broke, and now we have the four forces of the universe as we know them today. And, and, and the fundamental particles at that point acquire mass. They acquire mass. Now here on Earth, when we speak of mass and weight, we confuse the two. Your mass is your weight. But physically, that's not true. Your mass is effectively a measure of how much particles there is in your body. Your weight is a measure of the uh, tug of gravity. Your weight on Earth is not the same as your weight on, on, on the Moon or on Mars, because the power of gravity is different, but your mass will always be the same. Okay, all right. The eighth period is the Hadron epoch, H-A-D-R-O-N. And that goes from 10 to the minus 6 seconds to 1 second. To one second. By any measure, this is a gigantic leap in time compared to the previous periods. Right? So during this period, what is really important for us is that protons and neutrons form. That's the building block of the universe, pretty much. And they form during that period. So going back, for based on what I told you so far, just a little quick review, you see that we had one small period during which all four forces were unified, then gravity breaks away, followed by the strong nuclear force, the result, the consequence being that the universe inflate very, very rapidly. And then we also have the breakaway from the uh, electromagnetic force, from the weak nuclear force, and the result is that you have quark being created, and after that you have proton and neutron being created. See the order in the chaos. See the order in the chaos. The basic building block that need that there are required of life proceed 
step by step. Step by step. Okay, so now we have the protons, we have the neutrons. What do we need to make an atom now? What, what is the piece that is missing? Electron. Electrons are part of a larger family called the lepton. Okay? Lepton contains an electron, a muon, and a tau. Don't worry about those two other guys. Electron is sufficient. What is the characteristic of an electron? Electrons are not susceptible to the strong nuclear force. The, the strong nuclear force does not act on electrons. They go by and go, na 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 you can't get me, you can't get me. I told you, they're like guys who run around, need to go to the bathroom and never finding it. Right? But now, those particles are formed, so you have the basic building block of the atom being prepared. And that happens between one second and three minutes. One second, three minutes. Why do you think time now is expanding? Why are we needing more time? We're, okay, we're getting tired. What does that mean? Exactly. It's the universe is cooling. So it's requiring more time to do the same thing. Is it a strange idea? No. You take a pop, uh, you, you, you know, you, you take a soup, you put it on a small fire. It'll take you a lot longer to heat it than if you put it on, I don't know, a, a torch. You might burn the soup, but, uh, you know, you'll heat it quicker. That sort of thing is happening here. The universe is cooling, therefore it takes longer for these things to happen. The lepton epoch. One second to three minutes of the universe. I do have the size and the temperature, but I didn't include them here because I thought that might be a little bit too much. But here's an interesting thing that happens. During that period, you see, a lepton has an anti-lepton. You've heard of matter and antimatter. What is that? Well, it's, it's, a, it's the same kind of particle, but with an opposite charge. When those two guys get attracted to each other, it's like, I love you unto death. They hit each other and they annihilate each other. They turn back into energy. Right? They turn back into energy. And annihilation takes place and leaves a very small residue, a very small residue of leptons. Small enough to power the initial stage of the universe. I mean, if I were to get into the figures, you'd be blown away. We just had enough to get us going. All right, so now we have, up to epoch 9, we have everything we need for, to build molecules, right? What, what, what is missing? We have matter. What are we missing so far? Water. Huh? Before water. Water is built out of molecules. Water is matter, right? What is not matter? Pardon? Light. Where's light? We have no light so far. Well, 10, the photon epoch. The photon epoch, right? Well, this phase goes from 3 minutes to 300,000 years. The photon epoch. 3 minutes to 300,000 years. It's called the dark ages. Why? Because that's the period I told you about where the universe is, goes completely dark. What is going on then? Photons dominate the universe because the leptons, meaning the electrons and the other guys, most of them got annihilated. And the protons and the neutrons haven't formed yet. So photons are the king of the hill. And they're just zipping by so fast, but they can't go anywhere because the other particles block their way. So just it cannot cool down. And it takes, 
It takes 300,000 years for the universe to cool enough so that protons and neutrons start to clump together and open up the space so that light can emerge. So the universe is opaque or foggy. There's, there is light, but it's not light we could observe through telescopes. All right? And Hubble, at one point, they got Hubble focusing on one area of the universe for 12 days straight. They just opened the lens and kept it there. And when you go back and look at the movie as it was reconstituted, as you move back in time, because, you know, as you go further in space, you move back in time, when you reach about the 4 billion year era, the universe is pretty much dark. There are hardly any galaxies. So observations line up with the theory pretty, pretty well. During this period of 300,000 years, I told you that protons can now begin to clump together, and we have hydrogen that, and, and uh, helium that form. This is called nucleosynthesis. Well, synthesis, nucleo, nucleus, nucleoformation. You're forming the nucleus of the molecules. And there are, there are about three times more hydrogen than helium. It's kind of obvious because it's a lot easier for a proton to clump with a neutron than two protons and two neutrons to get together. And that's the ratio has, has remained throughout the life of the universe. It's the same ratio we observe today. And there is only a trace quantities of everything else. A trace quantity of everything else. And that trace quantity of everything else powers the universe. Either one proton and one neutron to form the nuclei of hydrogen, hydrogen, or two protons and two neutrons coming together to form helium. Ah, now, something really important happened during this period. The interesting thing is that during this period, the density, so effectively how much of the stuff you have per volume, of the photon on one hand and the proton and neutron is pretty much equal. And because of this, the force of gravity starts to kick in. It acts. And it starts to form clump in matter. So matter is not completely uniform. It looks completely uniform, but there are variations. Sort of when you look at a glass, it, the glass may look perfect, but if you look under the microscope, you'll see all sorts of cuts in it. That's what we're talking about. Now, how do we find that stuff out? Well, when you look at the um, uh, cosmic background radiation, and you see the distribution of these cosmic background radiation, you see small variation in them, indicating the... It's sort of a snapshot. This cosmic background radiation is a snapshot of the universe at about 300,000 years. And you can see there is minor variation in, in the way matter clumps. Here's the cool thing. That minor, you know how you have an angle? If you, if you have an angle, and at the origin of the angle, you had one degree, and you sort of go out for 2,000 miles, that one degree adds up quite a bit, Right? So when I'm telling you minor variation, I don't want you to think that, oh, well, if we had a little bit more variation, we would still have the universe we have today. Uh-uh. It's very highly calibrated. If we had a little bit more minor variation in the way matter clumped, we wouldn't be around. If we had a little bit less minor variation, we wouldn't be around either. There's only a very thin slice that gives the universe we have in, we have today. There is one fascinating aspect of the universe is that during this period, you actually have radio waves 
due to the density of the universe. Effectively, the universe is singing. And it's polyphonic. The waves are stacked on top of each other. You know, the universe declares the glory of, of the Lord. Just as an aside. All right. Eleven. Now we're back into something we can deal with, which is the age of the quasars. 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 Q-U-A-Z-A-R-S. They're not the Tsars, they're the quasars. Okay, just in case you're... Right. Eleven, yes. Pardon? No, ten. Ten. So the structure formation in the Big Bang model proceeds hierarchically. We start with small, and we grow large. And the first large structure are the quasar, quasars, which are thought to be bright, early, active galaxies, and population three stars. They're very, very um, wobbly galaxies. They're not like the Milky Way. And these were incredibly massive, and near the end of their lives, when they exploded, the quasars created the 26 elements on the chemical chart, the chart that we have today. So the first 26 elements all the way up to iron were created in, in quasars. That's where they come from. No, hydrogen and helium, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, other than hydrogen and helium, those were created earlier. But beyond hydrogen and helium, the rest of those elements, the quasars were formed of hydrogen and helium to begin with. But the rest of the elements in the table, up to the 26 element iron, were created in quasars. That's where they come from. Because where they're going to come from? There's no way in the early universe that you're going to have these uh, more complex atoms simply because the time was not long enough for the nuclear force to be able to act on and stabilize more than two protons and two neutrons. Now, we have a little bit of a problem. No population three stars have ever been found. So these are hypothesized to have existed based on what the model tells us. We have not been able to find one yet. So when they collapse because of gravitation, you know how it is, they implode, right? They emit, they reunize the surrounding universe, meaning what? There is like a second beginning. Because these things implode and then spew that stuff out. All right? So you now have to go through a second phase of formation to wait for stars and galaxies to form again before we can actually get to the point where we're going to have life. And so the universe is composed again of what? Plasma TVs, I mean plasma. Although today you might say on Earth that the universe is composed of plasma TVs, but different story. All right. And the last phase is the modern universe, the universe as we know it today. Large volumes of matter collapse to form galaxies. And population two and one stars are formed. And then gravitational attraction pulls galaxies towards each other to form groups, clusters, and superclusters. Our solar system forms 8 billion years ago. Earth forms 4.3 billion years ago. Today, we're 13.7 billion years later in the formation of the universe. All right. You've been with me so far? Have I confused you completely? Yes. Huh? Yes? Who's confused? Ah, not taking notes. Aha! All right. I'll let you ask questions. Okay. That's right. I'll let you ask questions. And I want to point out a couple of things, if I can remember what I was going to point out. Some, if, you, if you look at some of the pictures of the universe, it's absolutely huge. It's beyond huge. 
It's beyond comprehension. Right? It's absolutely, incredibly big. And some of you may be wondering, why did God need to create something that big? Answer, you needed a universe that big for life to form. There's a very simple reason. Another observation. The universe consists of objects which are about 10 to the minus 25 centimeter big to about 10 to the 30 centimeter big. Okay? Opposite extremes. This is the range of things we have. All right? When you lay these things up on a circle, you see that man stands in the middle. There are as many stuff smaller than us as there are stuff bigger than us. Just an observation. Proves nothing, but it's thought-provoking. All right. Now, evidence in support of the Big Bang Theory. I told you about the microwave background radiation. The universe is 13.7 billion years old with a margin of error close to 1%. We know that from quasars as we push them all the way back. The first stars ignited 200 million years after the Big Bang. The content of the universe, content of the universe in terms of matter. Okay? You ready for this one? The content of the universe in terms of matter. 4%, 4% atoms. We're made of atoms. The earth is made of atoms. The sun is made of atoms. The stars are made of atoms. The galaxies are made of atoms. Everything visible you see is 4% of the universe. 4%. 1, 2, 3, 4. 4. 2 plus 2. 4. 1 plus 3. 4. Yes, 4% atoms. Uh-huh, okay, okay. 23%, 23% cold, dark matter. Cold, dark matter. Cold, dark matter. What's that stuff? Beats me. Actually, it beats everybody. Nobody knows what that stuff is. We don't know. Actually, we have a little bit of an idea. Some model suggests, I think I have it here, yeah. One theory suggests that these things are weakly interactive massive particles. Weakly interactive massive particles, wimps. They're massive particles, but they just don't interact with anybody. They just want to be there by themselves. Go away, I want to talk to you. So therefore, they don't interact with light, with, with mass, and we cannot see them. That's one theory. There's an opposing theory that suggests that they're actually massive, compact halo objects. Machos. Pick your side. Wimps or machos? The bottom line, we really don't know. We can observe their effect. And let me tell you why we can observe their effect. Here's the deal. You look at the Milky Way and you think, wow, what a massive big thing. Okay. Do this. Go to the beach. Take a... uh, Take a uh, handful of sand, add a bit of pebbles in them, and then, and then imagine that with your finger you can start twirling this whole thing at high speed, okay? Very high speed, and then you throw it up in the air, twirling at high speed. What happens to it? Huh? Scatters. Scatters. Why? 
there isn't enough mass to keep the thing together. Welcome to the Milky Way. You look at the mass of the Milky Way, all the visible mass that we have, there isn't enough stuff to keep it together, rotating through all, all these years. There is something else holding it together. We call that cold dark matter. Gets more interesting. Remember, 4%, 23% cold dark matter. 73%, 73% of the universe is made of dark energy. Dark energy. I am your father. Right? Dark energy. What is this stuff? Here's the deal. Not too long ago, when they observed, one more time, the speed at which things are flying away from each other. Okay? So think of it this way. You have an explosion that sends things all over the place in a sphere. Right? What happens to the initial velocity? Eventually, it does what? It slows down. So the thinking is, 13.7 billion years later, things are probably still moving apart from each other, but they should be moving what? Slower from each other, right? Make sense, everybody? Well, when they observed it, guess what they found out? It's accelerating. It's like the galaxies are saying to each other, I just can't stand you. I'm going this way, you're going that way, I'm going to see you again. And that's what's going on. It's accelerating at an incredible rate. So there is an energy that is counteracting the forces of gravity and pushing everything away at a very, very high speed. You all know, you've heard that, that nothing moves faster than the speed of light, right? Wrong. The universe does. The universe does. What do I mean by that? Think of a cake. Okay, you have a dough. You have two raisins on the dough. You put it in the oven. What happens to the dough? It rises. What happens to the raisins? They move apart. That's what's going on. The universe is rising. It's expanding at super speed. And it's pushing everything apart. We call this dark energy. As a matter of fact, we think that as the universe expands, more universe comes into play, right? Well, I told you later on there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing that is nothing. I mean, nothing is nothing. You understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> the idea is that when this universe comes into in existence, it has stuff in it, dark energy. It's part of it, and it pushes everything apart. And 73% of the universe is made of that stuff. And we have no clue what it is. No clue. According to the model, for the, data, for the model to fit the data, the universe will expand forever. There is no contraction back because of the speed at which we're, 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 we're expanding right now. We're just going to keep on expanding and expanding and expanding. All right? Now, of course, this conclusion can change. All right, I'm going to end with a couple of problems we don't know how to solve. I told you about the horizon problem. Inflation is trying to address that. Uh, there's a couple other problems. The, 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 
there is a lack of symmetry in the parity of the galaxies. What, what, what does that mean? It means that when, I, when we look at the galaxies from Earth, some are twirling clockwise, others are twirling counterclockwise. Well, there are more twirling counterclockwise than there are twirling clockwise. We don't know why. The model can't account for that right now. Okay? The missing mass, 70% dark energy, 20% dark matter. What is that stuff? We don't know. But what we know is that overall you have a consistent theory that is today the best explanation we have of the way the universe functions. Not only that, it is a theory that can be very easily harmonized with the book of Genesis. And it's also harmonized with our understanding of providence, of the way God works on us. We all know that God works on us in our journey in strange and mysterious ways. And sometimes he breaks things down to build something else instead. Right? And the universe seems to follow the same pattern. In a fundamental way, so now I'm moving off to theology, in a fundamental way, the universe is a Catholic sacrament. It's a symbol pointing to the church. It's a symbol that tells us in its physical makeup what to expect in the kingdom of God. Expect this. The church growing mysteriously. The church filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. 70% of the church is the Holy Spirit. Actually, 90% of the church is the Holy Spirit. We're a small portion of the church. It's the church filled with angels. We cannot see them. The visible part of the church on earth is only a tiny part of the overall mystical body of Christ. Do you see the correspondence, the beautiful correspondence between what this theory suggests and a Catholic view of the world? This is what we've been missing, missing on. We don't have this framework to answer the questions that come to us, really good questions from kids who can be confused with what the teachers are telling them. How do you marry this with faith? We can. It's the proper understanding of the liturgy that binds everything together. Because Christ is the truth. The way and the life. In everything. From theology to the sciences. We just have to listen. And not be afraid. God bless you. All right. Um, let's see. We... Do, ha! We don't have time for questions, but I'll take them anyhow. And I'll leave Michael with the way to figure out how he's going to reconcile all this. By the way, if you want the CDs for, this, for these talks, Michael is the man. He's right here. You talk to him. All right, questions. Yes? Where do black holes come into play? Black holes are singularity uh, that are a result of the implosion of stars, such that when that implosion reaches its effective limit, you end up with one point, which is very tiny, with a huge gravitational mass associated with it. You get a black hole. It's so powerful that photons can't escape it. So light even cannot escape. And you end up with something we call a black hole. So our galaxy presumably have a black, has a black hole in its center, which is what's keeping it also together. Right? Yes? 
Exactly. It's a very good point. And I'm not trying to imply that science is the basis for the faith, as I said earlier. It, it will never be. I'm simply trying to say, based on our current understanding of the faith, there is a way to look at it and say, wow, that's amazing. Now, it could be all wrong. It could be tomorrow there's another Einstein that shows up and flips things around, upside down. And then again, we have to make that effort. It's an ongoing effort to see what science is telling us with a loose hand. This is not dogma. Science is known to make mistakes all the time. Right? But it is progressing towards the truth and constantly work on showing that there is no contradiction. It's sort of negative theology. We're simply saying there's no contradiction. Most of the time, that's what we're saying. Yes? Oh, good question. When everything was compressed, what was around that? Nothing. Why? Because in order to say that there's something around it, it implies space. But by definition, space is in the universe. Therefore, there can be nothing around the universe because there is no space around it. That's what we know today. I'll, 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 hit, I'll, I'll touch upon alternative theories when we cover all of this. Yes? What was the name of that whole group again? Oh, Mark Healer. Uh, no, Michael Healer. Healer. H-E-L-L-E-R. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the question is, how do I measure the shift? Because if I measure it today, we're all shifting the same. Well, no, we're moving apart from each other. We're not constantly moving together. We're not like two wagons of a train connected and moving together. We're actually moving apart from each other. The universe is expanding. Like those two raisins on the loaf, if you and I were raisins on that loaf, right, before we went in the oven, we were, say, two inches apart, and suddenly we start seeing each other. I see, start seeing your Doppler shift, you're turning red. Well, maybe because you're in oven, so maybe that doesn't work. But the point is, there's a Doppler effect going on. You're moving away. But from your perspective, I'm moving away. Good question. If there are three planets lined up, remember, cosmology works on vast distances. On local distances, the effect is not felt. That's why the, the, the solar system stays together, because of the gravitational force, which is dominant in a local neighborhood. That's why Newtonian physics work just fine at our scale. It's when you go to the massive scales that it just breaks apart. Yes? It seems like the law of entropy doesn't apply to big bang theory. Pardon? The law of entropy does apply, but there is a, a, a hitch. I'll be talking about the law of entropy. I'm sure many of you have heard about the law of entropy, which has been constantly misused as an argument against theory of evolution, which bugs me especially when I start talking about negative entropy, because they see a negative sign in front of the equation, which has a log. Anyhow, talk about negative entropy. The law of entropy is effectively a measure of the noise. A measure of the noise. Put differently, it's the measure, if you have a system with molecules in it, some molecules can be used to register information, and molecules cannot be used to register information because they're too chaotic. Entropy is the measure of those molecules that cannot be used to register information. It's a measure of chaos, if you will. Put differently, it's a measure of rest. 
But be it as it may, we think it applies because what happens is if you have a crunch, if you have a big crunch, where the universe kind of compresses back, the law of entropy will cause the next iteration of the Big Bang to produce a chaotic universe. However, because of the pre the pre-Planck uh, period, where the four forces are unified, it is not clear if we can still speak of the effect of the law of entropy. Some do, but I'm not completely convinced because of this. Yes? Oh, if the universe continues to grow, will that number keep decreasing? No. No, it doesn't, because the mass is the same. It's constant, regardless of the volume. The density decreases. The density is the ratio of mass over volume. That decreases, but the mass doesn't. Right? No, we're not going to vanish. Yes? Uh-huh. Yes. They, they do it this way to illustrate it. But it's not a bell. It's a sphere. Yes. It explodes it explode in, every, in every direction. All right? Yes. Which radio waves? The ones that were emitted. Oh, uh, simply because uh, there is this, per- this, this period of recomposition that happened right before light was able to escape. And it sort of acted like an eraser and erased much of what happened before it. The only thing that escapes was the gravitational field. And there is three projects by, by, uh, by NASA right now underway to be able to use the gravitational field to understand what happened behind that opaque curtain. But that's why we, can, we can't measure it. Yes? As the universe expanding, you said it's expanding faster. Yes. What's it expanding into? Ah, what is the universe expanding into? Let me show you this. Say I have a sphere, right? And we are standing on the sphere. We want to know if we are actually, if the sphere is expanding. Do I need to have another reference outside of the sphere to find that out? No. Why? Because we look at each other and we see each other moving apart. We know the sphere is expanding. That's what's going on in the universe. There is, the universe is not something into something else. It is the thing that contains everything. But it expands. It has that property of being able to expand. It's expanding into itself. Correct. Correct. We can't fathom this because it requires us to understand, to think in fourth dimension. Right, geometrically, and we, we don't have the brains for that. Any other question? Yeah. Yes. In the Catholic Church, they accept this. The theory of the, yes, absolutely. Except meaning that the church today will say that the standard model is an acceptable theory. There's absolutely nothing in it that contradicts faith or morality. Does this mean that the church is saying this is the theory that works? No, because the church has no authority to talk about the workings of science. It's a completely different field. doesn't fall under the authority of the church. The church has to make sure that the interpretation of this does not contradict faith and morality, but it looks at it and says, I respect what science is doing in a scientific endeavor, and my job is to reflect theologically on its meaning and make sure that I protect the faithful from any misrepresentation. We'll get into those later. That's all the church does. That's the beauty of the church. Instead of connect, gluing itself to a theory or refusing a theory, it keeps a respectful distance from science, but requests the scientists to be true scientists 
seek the truth because we're not afraid of it. Yes? Last question. All right, the question is, could it, there be extraterrestrial? The answer is, there could be extraterrestrial. We don't know what they are made of. Uh, we think, presumably, made of carbon, because almost everything that has life in it is made out of carbon, uh, and it would be part of the visible universe. If you're asking me, are there extraterrestrials made out of the cold, dark matter? I'd say it's highly unlikely, because we don't, know, we don't understand how this can support life. As far as the dark energy is concerned, that's even more remote. So, most likely, if there is life out there, um, it would be made of the same stuff that we can see and touch, and et cetera, et cetera. Pardon? All right, let's uh, finish with a, a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.